On the Record with White House correspondent April Ryan. Welcome to this next installment of On the Record with April Ryan. I am so pleased today to be able to talk to a good friend, someone I admire, someone who is on the front line. She does not play. I'm talking about none other than Sherilyn Eiffel, the president and director counsel of the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund, founded by the the icon himself, the late great Thurgood Marshall. Um, you know, we hear so much about the the, the Legal Defense Fund. Sherilyn Eiffel, first of all, welcome. Um, talk to us about the the Legal Defense Fund, the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund that was founded by Thurgood Marshall and, and the fact that it is not necessarily a part of the NAACP. Talk to us about that. It's not even not necessarily. It's not. So first of all, thank you, April, for having me. I'm I'm, I'm thrilled that we're getting an opportunity to do this. Yeah, the Legal Defense Fund was founded by Thurgood Marshall in 1940 and uh, for its first uh, 15 or so years was a part of the NAACP. But it has been an entirely separate organization from the NAACP since 1957. And I think people don't realize that. Um, And so while, uh, you know, we admire the work of the NAACP, uh, we have no formal affiliation. We are entirely separate organizations. And we've basically been the legal arm of the civil rights movement. Um, It's an organization now about... Uh, staff of about 80 and um, primarily comprised of lawyers. Um, We litigate cases in the Supreme Court. We litigate cases in state courts. We do policy work in Washington, D.C. Almost all of our cases are in the South, um, where we really continue to focus our work. And our work is focused principally on um, issues of racial discrimination and inequality. And we have our hands full these days. Wow, you say your work is primarily in the South, and you would think in 2018 uh, that wouldn't be the case. Um, why is it particularly, what are some of the cases that you're working on in the South that you can talk to me about? Yeah, I think, you know, we've made we've been very intentional about continuing to focus our efforts there in, in, in large measure because so many people are not focused on, uh, on the South. Um, mm. But, you know, people forget, I think, April, you know, even still today, uh, 52% of black people live in the South. Mississippi and, with the um, highest and, population, correct? Yeah, blacks. and so I think people don't, you know, we, we focus our attention, we, we are focused on African Americans, and so we focus our attention on the place where places where African Americans live and when, mm-hmm. where they're subject to tremendous inequality and where very often they don't have a very strong voice. Um, and so although a majority of African Americans live in the South, you know, in terms of, um, you know, their, their governors and, and, and people who are in control and have power, um, you know, many African-Americans are without a, a strong enough voice to be able to really fight for um, equal treatment and to fight for access and opportunity. Um, a lot of our cases are, you know, voting rights cases. As you can imagine, we challenged uh, Texas's voter ID law. We are in the midst of a challenge of Alabama's voter ID law. We challenge racial discrimination in local elections and, you know, judicial elections. We just won a case in Terrebonne Parish, Louisiana. I mean, we really try to get down into communities where people live and where power is exercised, and we, we spend a lot of attention um, on those communities. But we also um, do criminal justice work. We do a lot of work around policing reform. Um, many other people may have forgotten about North Charleston after Walter Scott was killed there several years ago, shot in the back by a police officer, but we've remained and continue to explore issues of um, inequality and policing uh, in, in North Charleston, South Carolina. Um, we, we continue to do a lot of education cases. You know, we still have cases from our old desegregation docket uh, in which we monitor school districts and their compliance with those consent decrees. We just won a case last, uh, last year in which uh, 
a white in a in a school district in Alabama, in Jefferson County, Alabama, attempted to secede from the school district and take with them the new uh, magnet award-winning magnet high school that had been drawing students from around the county. And we had challenged that in court and took it all the way up to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and won. So, um, you know, we have a very full docket. We're very focused also on housing discrimination. This is this year's the 50th anniversary of the Fair Housing Act. Um, and this is a critical part of e- economic stability for African-Americans and for African-American communities. And there are places that we work that are not, you know, certainly in the Deep South, we do a lot of work in Baltimore. We do a lot of work in Detroit around uh, housing issues. Um, and so our work is not exclusively in the South. We do, you know, policing work in New York, um, but a majority of our cases are. And, you know, we are focused on structural change, on how can we challenge those structural practices that keep African-American people from being able to uh, fully exercise their rights and to fully realize their opportunities as American citizens. Hmm. And, and with the 10 minutes we have remaining, I mean, I could talk to you about so much, and I'm sure, you know, with the housing issue, with the new administration and some of the things that they've said, uh, I know, I know you're challenged there, but you, you also, and I just said, I heard you say, oh, I know. Um, and I wish we had time to get into that. Maybe that's another issue, but, um, the yeah. three things I well, we, we, we sued Ben Carson twice, so if you want to have a show on housing, I'd be happy to come back. <laughs> yes, we have to do that. We definitely have to do it. But there are three things that you have been in the news about, three main things. One thing, and you talked about this, policing reform and sentencing reform. Sentencing reform is something this administration does not want to tackle as they're tackling prison reform. And the issue of policing, we keep hearing about policing as the president talks about, well, he talks about the flag issue, but he doesn't deal with the issue of weeding out bad policing. And that's something that is on the on the table now also Starbucks you were you were intricately involved in the um, in, in the conversation a few weeks ago uh, when they shut those stores down to have a conversation about issues of race uh, with the employees and then there were some people who said that's great but they need there needs to be teeth for these um, to uh, some kind of bite for the employees so they would not discriminate or, or or think of doing something that's discriminatory to customers and then also another issue and you were very forceful on twitter with this and and your voice was heard it was resounding about muhammad ali president trump wanted to pardon muhammad ali when indeed 1971 something had happened to overturn the conviction you talked about that it's just crazy so in these few minutes that we have let's start off with muhammad ali the pardon of muhammad ali yeah yeah so president trump fell in in his heart that would be a good thing so why isn't it a good thing (laughs) well you know what it's funny just listening to you describe this april i mean i think i can weave this all together because in some ways it's all of a piece you know, the, the president last week uh, suddenly came before microphones after a day after he had pardoned um, Alice Johnson, a woman who had been uh, in prison for 35 years. Which um, was a good thing. Which was a good drug thing. charges, which was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he pardoned her at the urging of the reality star Kim Kardashian, who had made a personal appeal for her release. And of course, it's a good thing. I, you know, we stand against at the legal defense on overly harsh sentences, sentences that keep people in jail for nonviolent crimes way past the time um, when when you are there's any you know uh, a real uh, reason to 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 hold someone it's simply for the purpose of punishment and just to um, take away someone's entire life um, is just 
it's so counter to certainly what we believe, but I think many people are starting to recognize that it has led to mass incarceration. The United States has over 2 million people in, in uh, incarcerated, which is a, a, a national shame and a demonstration of the failures of our criminal justice system, not the success of our criminal justice system. It is not um, supportable financially. If you think about the money that goes into our prison systems, money that could be going into education infrastructure and into building up our society, um, and so there is actually kind of a bipartisan, both Republicans and Democrats recognize mass incarceration as a problem and um, had begun to talk about what we need to do to reverse mass incarceration. And there are a whole set of issues that have to be dealt with from the beginning to the end. Um, one of them is policing reform, is the, is the uh, inequalities in policing, overly aggressive policing, um, you know, a bail that keeps people in, in jail while they await uh, trial. These are people who are innocent until proven guilty, but simply because they don't have the money for cash bail are held in jail. And we had the tragic case in New York of Khalif Browder, a young man who was held in jail for years um, for stealing a backpack because he couldn't make bail. And when he was finally released, he was so mentally uh, uh, really damaged by the experience that he ended up taking his own life. Um, so we have we have bail issues. We have sentencing issues, mandatory minimums that compel judges to put people away for extended periods of time. We have prosecutors who overcharge and who seek overly harsh sentences for nonviolent offenders. We have the conditions in our prisons themselves that do not rehabilitate and that make people who enter the prison even worse than they were when they came in. Um, and then we have reentry, people leaving prison without the uh, adequate resources that they need to be able to begin their lives again and to become productive citizens and laws that continue to punish them for life, like felony disenfranchisement laws that keep people from voting for life if they've been convicted of felonies in a number of states around the country. So that I've just laid out for you the whole timeline. And what the president has chosen to do is to engage in this kind of selective pardoning of people um, who are brought to him by celebrities or friends to pardon people for political purposes. Um, the pardoning of Sheriff Joe Arpaio, former Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was um, convicted because he continuously engaged in racial profiling and racism in his policing in Arizona uh, and refused to stop it and was held in contempt of court. Um, and this was the president's um, most high-profile pardon. And he stood shoulder to shoulder with a man a law enforcement figure engaged in racism and racial profiling, and he chose to pardon him. So he sent that powerful message. But then with the pardoning of Ms. Johnson, I think that the president really believes that he has made an overture, and particularly an overture to the African-American community. And so he came out to the microphones last week and said that he was considering pardoning Muhammad Ali. Huh. Um, now, Muhammad Ali, as many people know, the world-famous boxer, um, was, the greatest of uh, all refused, times, yes. The greatest of all time yes. had refused to participate in the draft. Uh, he had joined the Nation of Islam. He was Cassius Clay, joined the Nation of Islam, changed his name to Muhammad Ali, and refused to fight in the Vietnam War, refused to be inducted into the draft. And as a result, he was criminally prosecuted and convicted. Um, and the question was, did he have a valid claim of uh, religious exemption? Um, the organization I lead, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, represented him along with his personal attorney and took the case all the way to the United States Supreme Court where we won. And Muhammad Ali's... In 1971, was, right? In 1971. And he was and convicted in 67. That's right. And his, and he was and therefore he was unable to box for a number of years. His, his license was revoked by the New York State Boxing Authority. 
Um, and so his conviction was reversed, all charges dismissed, and then we represented him in also getting his license back, which is how Muhammad Ali was able to have the amazing career that he had, because it was after that that he fought Joe Frazier and then continued on that incredible storied uh, career in the, in the 1970s with the thriller in Manila and the rumble in the jungle and all of those um, extraordinary boxing matches. Uh, but 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 this is well known, <laughs> and and so. But and the, the president, president didn't know it. The president, well, the president of the United didn't States it. didn't know it. No, in in fact, because the week before he had pardoned Jack Johnson, the boxer from the early 20th century, African American boxer who had been also criminally convicted, but it was criminally convicted on trumped up charges, laws that were made up simply to ensnare him, uh, because whites were so angry about his relationship with white women. Uh, that they uh, basically made up laws about trafficking and, and bringing women across state lines and uh, convicted him on trumped-up charges. And President uh, Trump decided to pardon him at the behest of Sylvester, Sylvester Stallone, Stallone, the movie Rocky, actor. Yes. So, now, so, so he's pardoned Jack, Jack Johnson, someone who is, is long deceased, uh, and then he, at the behest of Sylvester Stallone, then he pardons Alice Johnson, uh, at the behest of Kim Kardashian, and I guess feeling excited about what he's doing, he comes out and says he's going to. He's seriously thinking, and that he got the paper and he's really studying pardoning Muhammad Ali. Well, if there had been any study going on, it would have been well known that there was nothing to pardon Muhammad Ali for because his conviction had been reversed. And then he continued by saying, and now he's going to ask the athletes who have been kneeling to send to him a list of their. I'm quoting him now friends or people they know of, their friends or people they know of, who've been treated unfairly, the president said, because after all, that's what they're protesting about, and I will consider pardoning them. And I guess so that was that was a here. response, that was kind of a response to my question, I guess, when I said, does yeah, the president so know, me, you know, what they're kneeling for? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so you talked about this very powerfully in uh, the press briefing the other day. That is not, in fact, what the NFL players have been kneeling for. They have not been kneeling for pardons for their friends or people they know of. They have been kneeling to protest police violence against unarmed African-Americans that has exploded on the scene long before the, the, uh, Trump was elected during the Obama administration, beginning with the killing of Eric Garner and going on to Mike Brown in Ferguson and Walter Scott in North Charleston and Tamir Rice in Ohio and on and on. The list goes of and Trayvon, Trayvon kind of and Trayvon sparked this, and then Skip Gates really was the thread at the beginning with with police That's profiling, right. and then you went to That's Trayvon, right. and yeah, and it just kept well, going. Tra- Trayvon, of course, was not killed by a police officer; he was killed by someone who who imagined he was law yes, enforcement, George Zimmerman, right, right. Uh, but he was racially profiled. And so this is this is a long simmering issue, but it has um, you know been in stark relief since the the videos have been released, and since then we've seen many many more videos. And that is what Colin Kaepernick was kneeling about. That is what other players have been kneeling and protesting about, police violence against unarmed African-Americans. They're quiet, dignified protests seeking to bring attention to this issue. The president seeking to co-opt this issue first has denigrated these players, described them as SOBs, uh, incited the country against them, um, some in the country against them, incited the NFL against them, um, and then now tries to co-opt their protest by suggesting that their pro- their protest is about pardons for their friends and people they know. And this is just deeply cynical. Um, the, even the pardon issue is about the president's mercy, even when exercised appropriately, in, as in the Alice Johnson case, 
uh, about the president's mercy for people who have been in prison for a very long time. But that is not criminal justice reform. Criminal justice reform is about fixing the structural problems that produce a situation like Alice Johnson's. And here is where the president is woefully inadequate. There is a bill in the United States Senate that seeks sentencing reform, and it has bipartisan support. And the president has not touched that bill. Um, the and the reason why Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, the reason why um, he has not touched it from what I'm hearing, Jeff Sessions says he does not want to deal with sentencing reform. Jeff Sessions, the same person the president doesn't like, will not talk nice or kindly about. And Jeff Sessions is holding up sentencing reform, which doesn't make sense but the to question, me. Yeah. The, yeah, the question, April, is how can Jeff Sessions hold up sentencing reform? We understand how he held it up uh three years ago when we when there was a, a bipartisan sentencing reform bill under the Obama administration and Jeff Sessions held it up. We understood because he was the United States senator. He actually had a, vo- vo- a vote. He had influence on a committee and so forth. He is no longer a United States congressman. He is the attorney general of the United States. His job is to execute the laws that are passed by Congress, not himself to decide what laws will be passed. So someone will have to explain to me how the president can allow Jeff Sessions to hold up the issue of sentencing reform. It can happen in a minute. The president could tweet tomorrow that he thinks sentencing reform is important and he would have Congress people who would line up behind him. So this is, a, this is an issue that if the president really was interested in um, criminal justice reform, he would be taking this up. We know that his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has supported this idea of what he's calling prison reform. It really in- involves um, in- individuals who have been in prison being able to get good, good time credits and having an opportunity to be transferred to halfway houses. This is all in the federal system, by the way, which is the smallest part of our criminal justice system. But that's the back end. And what we need is the front end, especially because Jeff Sessions has begun ramping up, uh, overcharging, having his his U.S. attorneys overcharge and seek harsh sentences, something that Attorney General Eric Holder had reversed under his Smart on Crime initiative. So we have Jeff Sessions shoveling people more into the system on the front end. We have, for some reason, his refusal to support sentencing reform and the acquiescence of the White House in that. And we have the president coming out for these staged pardons, even of people who are deceased, and in some instances of people who are deceased and who have no conviction to be pardoned of. So this is a very cynical and unfortunate um, conversation about, uh, about criminal justice reform, and that is very much at odds with the conversation that the athletes have really tried to provoke and tried to lift up um, that really is about about structural reform. And it relates to the Starbucks issue because, of course, we know that, <coughs> excuse me, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the employee at Starbucks called the police on two African-American men uh, because uh, they had not ordered something. They were waiting for someone for a business meeting, and the police came and arrested those men. And so there's a lot of issues, um, you know, that I can talk about with Starbucks. But, you know, there are also issues about the, the decision of the police to arrest those men. And this is the kind of thing we're talking about. And if those men, those two very exceptional and very impressive young men, had um, behaved slightly differently, mm-hmm. um, that, that could have had tragic uh, consequences. Um, and so, and that's know, so true. Are... That's the piece that people don't understand. That is very true. There is a difference in America with one set of people versus another. And just being black, sitting in Starbucks while black, being quiet can yeah. get you arrested. That's crazy. Yeah. 
And, and I mean, it's so it's extraordinary when you think about how that could have unfolded. And of course, we've seen since then videos from the Waffle House on several occasions and how an African-American woman was treated and a young, a young man after the prom. And so we understand how employees calling the police can, um, you know, produce results that are, are quite tragic. And so mm-hmm. when we were asked uh, right after the incident that happened in the Starbucks in Philadelphia, to uh, I was I received a call from the from the chair of the board to help Starbucks think through how to respond. In particular, he had decided that he wanted to close all of the 8,000 Starbucks stores across the country for one day um, to begin a process of beginning to to be trained to have employees trained around bias, around anti-bias and. Um, I agreed, along with uh, other uh, other civil rights leaders, to assist uh, Starbucks in this, and in particular, to really focus them on the fact that the one-day training was just a small part of the equation, um, and that you know we needed to review the policies of the organization. I said the most important that training needs to be ongoing. Um, Starbucks is a place that has a lot of turnover uh, in its employee population, and so. Um, training has to be embedded into, you know, the onboarding of new employees. We talked about the importance of, of leadership in the uh, corporation being trained, and they did undergo a training a week before um, 529 when all of the stores were closed. Um, but what about a very rigorous? Go ahead. But what about punishment? But what about punishment for employees? You know, reprimands, um, something put in your file well, if it you, happens. I mean, you, you, hit, you hit the nail on the head. You hit the nail on the head. Anybody who's worked in any industry knows that uh, training in and of itself is not effective. Training has to be accompanied by supervision. So supervisors have to ensure that uh, employees are operating in a way that is compliant with the training. There has to be um, some kind of discipline when employees depart from the training. Um, you know, so training ha- it's not just that you show up and you go through some exercises. It has to be fully integrated into the uh, expectations of, of employees across the company. Uh, it's not about feelings. It's about what, what do we expect of you as an employee. And that's why the policies become so important because they have to be embedded in policies. Supervisors have to be fully prepared to take seriously those obligations. And then there has to be some form of um, accountability. For those who depart from um, from the procedures that the that the corporation has identified and and implemented um, and and trained all its employees to to understand and and to work from, so it's a deep process. It is not a one day process, and part of our effort is to was to really help Starbucks understand that to send them the uh, names of the the people who we know who do this work who. We know are credible within our own community and who understand and who will not flinch from these issues of bias. And then one of my own, you know, contributions was to really encourage Starbucks to support the the creation of a small film, which they did, which was directed by the brilliant documentarian of Stanley Nelson, filmmaker, um, about, about public accommodations and the relationship between what we saw at that Starbucks and the ongoing struggle um, particularly the struggle it would, during this period of the civil rights movement of African-Americans to um, be fully respected in public accommodations, to be fully respected in the public space, to be true and complete citizens um, as it relates to, to public accommodations. And it was important to me for people to connect 
this issue that we're seeing today with that history. Hmm. Sherlyn Eiffel, I wish we had more time. I mean, it's just amazing talking to you, hearing everything. I mean, and everything, like you said, everything kind of melds into one yeah. another. And it's sad. Mm-hmm. And, and at a time in 2018, this is not 1955, 1965, you know, 1945. This is 2018. And we're still talking about matters of race. People say you're race baiting when you talk about it, but there's still evidence on the table that there's still a problem. And just in, in one short yes or no. We are a nation that has a lot of laws about race, but things haven't changed. In your mind, is this more of a heart issue at times, moments like this, or is it about legislation? I think it's both. We conform our behavior. It's almost like what I was saying about Starbucks and the policies being mm-hmm. important. We can, we conform our behavior to the law. We can, to, to, for the most part, we do. I mean, that's that's the. You've got to have strong laws, and you've got to have. In- of those laws. Right now we have an attorney general who has no interest in enforcing a whole panoply of the nation's civil rights laws. So you've got to have, you know, strong laws and you've got to have enforcement. And that's what we do. We're doing our very best to do that. And, and you create a context in which certain kinds of behavior are, are, are outside the social contract. And you do that by setting the, the boundaries of law. It doesn't answer everything, but it is vitally important. And that's what sends a message to people about what we regard as important and not important, what we regard as forbidden and not forbidden, what we regard as acceptable and not acceptable. Um, And so it begins there. I would not say nothing has changed. Many things have changed. And you and I would not be in the positions that we are in had things not changed. So we have to be honest about the fact that there has been some progress but in many ways, certainly not enough. And at this moment in our country, a, a very strong effort to take us back. Huh. Sherlyn Eiffel, I am honored. I'm thankful to finally have you to talk to you. It's just <laughs> amazing. Sherlyn Eiffel is the president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, founded by the late, great Thurgood Marshall. Sherlyn Eiffel, thank you so much for joining me with On the Record with April Ryan. Thank you, Sherlyn. Don't forget to subscribe to On the Record on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. On the Record, a product of American Urban Radio Networks.